0: Hello everybody. Welcome back to another episode of drive into the baskets. My name is Mike. I'm here with Tommy and as promised, this is going to be the first of our series on potential draft picks for the Pistons. So obviously the draft lottery is still, I believe about a month away. So we're not going to know where the Pistons will pick uh, for some time. Of course, that will inform whom they will have really the opportunity to pick, uh, so we're just going to go through uh, really the full list of the players uh, in whom the Pistons, you know, could conceivably have interest. So today uh, we're going to go over what is probably, I think, in the opinions of both of us, the the least important category. Uh, this is we both feel these are these are the players the Pistons uh, at the positions at which the Pistons are least likely to select players, uh, which is center and power forward. <clears throat> Now, Tommy is between the two of us, certainly uh, the undisputed uh, draft experts. Uh, I do my research, certainly he takes it to another level. So uh, I'm going to hand it straight off to him.
1: Yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, I wouldn't call myself an expert, but I, I've definitely gotten a lot more excited about the draft, especially now that the Pistons have higher picks. Uh, even before like the season was even close to shut down, I was getting a lot more into it. I'm very excited that uh, the Pistons are finally in a position where they have a pretty good chance of moving up, and uh, even though today we're going to be talking about bigs and uh, this isn't the best class for bigs, or rather it's a, it's a much better class for guards and wings, uh, there are definitely some guys worth talking about. Uh, and let's get kind of right into it because there's there's more to uh, what makes a, a good big man than just their individual skills. There's a lot more to it than that be you need to consider the way that the game is changing. And uh, we see a variety of guys who are kind of stepping outside the norm of their position. We see guys like Jokic who are who's slow, but he's still a big man who's shooting really well, and he's, he's handling the ball, and, and that's really great. And uh, guys like that who are kind of shifting positions and changing what uh, their position can be, is really exciting. So uh, these changes, I think they're for the best. And one of those changes is pace. And the Pistons championship teams of the past have slowed down the game with their defense and they've dictated a slower tempo. And uh, the third slowest pace in league history belongs to the 4 team where they averaged about 88 possessions per game. And to try and win like that now, is it's just not a good idea. Uh, there are a lot of things that the Pistons need to try to do and to emulate to get better and this rebuild gives them a prime opportunity to build a team that can work together to create an identity that's more in tune with the modern NBA and this unfortunately to some people means that defense is not priority A anymore it just can't be if you want to win uh, the 29 Ra- 2019 Raptors were a good defensive team and I'm not saying that it's not important to play defense uh, it absolutely is but it's very difficult to rationalize bringing in guys who specialize in defense without being a plus offensive player. It's a lot easier to hide a bad uh, defensive player like the Warriors do with Curry than it is to hide a bad offensive player. And uh, there's a lot of defensive presence to be gained by picking your spots in a way that limits driving lanes or limits three-point attempts like the Pistons have traditionally done. Uh, now that they don't have Drummond, their strategy of over-committing to the three-point line and trying to force guys inside to take the uncommon two it might not be the best option anymore Although I think Christian Wood uh, does pick his spots nicely, if the Pistons can keep him, that'll be a real challenge for him, and he may gain uh, a reputation as a bad rim protector. Uh, Mike, did you have something you wanted to add there?
0: <clears throat> yeah, I would I would just say uh, in terms of uh, what you're talking about uh, right at the beginning here, uh, definitely the role of the center has changed a great deal, uh, even in the last five years. But certainly when you look back to the 90s, for example – uh, that was an era of dominant centers, like guys who were really amongst the superstars and could really dictate the flow of the game. Uh, Robinson, Olajuwon, Shaq, and, and so on and so forth. And that's just a lot more difficult these days for centers to... Mm. Uh, I mean, it's, it's like you said, the decline of defense, the changes in defense, like the the changes. <laughs> these were largely due to the Pistons uh, and and maybe the Spurs as well. Uh, the hand-checking changes in, in 2005 that, that made defense considerably more difficult. But just just the game has changed to the point where, uh, where centers have become kind of second-class citizens, so to speak, or just not second-class citizens, but the, the position is the least important. And you don't really have those superstar centers anymore because if you want to be a superstar, uh, you've really got to be able to create your own offense and uh, and, and to really be an offensive superstar. And uh, I'd, I'd say of all the centers in the league, really only Jokic can do that, and that's because he's a great passer as well. Uh, but I totally agree that it's 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 very, very difficult now to be a dominant defensive presence. It's helpful, but uh, you don't really see many guys or really any guys in the league that I can think of who are, except for Anthony Davis, uh, who's kind of a power forward center and is masquerading as a power forward right now. Uh, But guys who can really stretch the floor, defend the rim, and then just be offensive superstars uh, while doing both of those things. So anyway, that's all I wanted to say.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of it does come down to defensive scheme. So like the Pistons... They do successfully limit opponents' three-point attempts. Uh, They were second in the league in opponents' three-point attempts, but they were 19th in opponent three-point percentage. And then the Raptors, on the other hand, they were 29th in three-point attempts, so their opponents take a lot of threes, but they were number one in uh, keeping their opponents' three-point percentage down. So they only allowed their opponents to shoot uh, 33.7% from distance, and then the Pistons let their opponents shoot an average of 36.1%. So the Raptors, even though they lost Kawhi Leonard in free agency, their defense still remains really good. And that's thanks to guys like Nick Nurse. And Siakam has definitely stepped it up. But his his system of positioning players inside to cut off driving lanes, and then what they would do is they would have really hard closeouts to the three-point line, and they would try to bother but not stop the shot. And it's worked for them. The Raptors are still a very good defensive team, and they have a lot of championship-level players left, but their system makes sense. And they're very good at recovering and resetting defensive assignments, whereas the Pistons will have to learn to do that, and that's going to come from experience and chemistry. The other thing that the Raptors did was play uh, zone defense on the strong side so they could position an extra defender near the lane who could uh, also jump back and contest the kickout it works really well. Uh, the Pistons defensive scheme wasn't bad, but they didn't have the best players. So their offense and defense was just kind of middle lane. Uh, and my, my point here is that it's just not a good idea to sign defense only players who can't space. And I think, you know, you see people talk not so much, uh, about bigs, cause this is honestly a pretty weak draft for big men, but there are guys like Isaac Okoro who, when we get to that player type, uh, Maybe we'll kind of mention why he's not the best option. But those guys, I don't think they can really bring you too much because even though they have value as defenders, they're going to be negatives. Did you want to add to that?
0: Yeah, I would say for the most part, uh, I completely agree with what you're saying. I mean, just offense is king, and shooting is now the most essential skill in the NBA uh, because having. I mean, four shooters in the floor is more or less necessary, uh, unless you're the durant area Warriors. Or, excuse me, Durant-era Warriors. When you just have so much talent, like if you ever have so much talent, like an, an enormous amount of talent, you can buck the mold, of course, and things will work for you. Uh, but if you don't, I mean, you got to field at least four shooters uh, in order to get proper spacing. You got have that have to have that spacing in order to be have to have you know the necessary efficiency and pace because so it's 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 just you have to have it in order to properly break down defenses and take the number of three pointers you need. Uh, mm-hmm. Having five is fantastic. It just offers you so much more in the way of options. You lose even one shooter uh, that comes with a very big opportunity cost. And, you know, he's great at defense isn't enough. You look at, I mean, the uh, the 76ers played uh, at Thibault a lot. Um, and he's a guy who can defend four positions. But the Sixers are a spacing mess to begin with. <laughs> I want to really yeah. use them as an example. Uh, but any guy on the floor who can't shoot, yeah, just the opportunity cost is very high uh, because it costs your offense, uh, potentially costs your offense a lot. Like Rudy Gobert is a great defender, but uh, the Jazz, despite being a top five team in, uh, in efficiency by true shooting, uh, scored the I mean, 17th most points per game because he slows down pace so much. But, or, and rather, like a guy like Andre Roberson, who was just a complete offensive minus uh, and was a liability, even playing next to Westbrook and Durant. You know, now he probably would not uh, see very many minutes if you were to come back. Uh, he definitely wouldn't be a starter because you just you can't make that sacrifice anymore. Hmm.
1: Yeah. So yeah, you're absolutely right. Traditional slower bigs have had to adjust, or they've been kind of forced out of the league. I mean, we saw this with Roy Hibbert, and more recently Tristan Thompson. So it's because the the question is, how does Roy Hibbert, a top defensive player around the rim end up out of the league by 30 years old? And there's more than one answer to that, but part of it is certainly versatility. Uh, Hibbert could not and would not guard outside the paint because one, he's, he was just excellent uh, as a defender around the rim, but he didn't have the speed or or the, uh, the agility to prevent blow bys off a switch or, Judge a pump fake on the perimeter, and that's huge in today's league. Uh, we saw this a little bit with Drummond to a lesser extent. Drummond was more agile than Hibbert, but he's still a big, tall player who will have more trouble shifting his weight. And in a lot of pre-draft interviews, you'll see the question get asked: What positions do you think you can guard? And the more defensive versatility you have, the better. And now it's becoming essential. And that's that's a word you'll hear hear a lot is versatility. It's what makes Draymond Green such an an elite defender. Uh, His ability to defend bigs with muscle and guards with his foot speed is invaluable. And that's in addition, of course, to his exceptional defensive IQ. And Golden State's switchy defense has served them well. And that's something the Pistons just haven't had with Drummond. Uh, This also leads to the Warriors' death lineup, which you kind of referenced from a few years ago, where they would swap out their their traditional centers like uh, Bogut and Zaza. They would put Iguodala at the four and slide Draymond to the five. And this lineup played fast, and it could hit from anywhere, and it was nearly impossible for opponents to keep up and stop everyone. And on offense, uh, having range or being able to pull big men out of the paint is huge. Uh, and there's more than one way to do it, but the most obvious, of course, is being able to shoot jumpers. And this is one area where the bad boys were actually ahead of their time, because Bill Lambert could shoot threes, and the bigs of today uh, who can shoot threes are extremely valuable.
0: Yeah, I, I definitely I definitely agree on that. We saw things look very different when Drummond uh, was gone. When Drummond was off to Cleveland and Christian Wood uh, more or less became, uh, you know, over time, uh, like basically Dwayne Casey, for whatever bizarre reason, uh, for a while was, well, I mean, starting John Henson, that was... A little silly. Uh, and at, at times, just even without Jen Henson on the floor, was playing Christian Wood at the four and Thon at the five. And it's like, that's dumb because <laughs> because, you know, you want to have Christian Wood in the play as much as possible, especially in the pick and roll uh, mm. where he's, he's excellent and Thon is, is dreadful. But uh, anyway, I mean, you saw suddenly the Pistons field an offense with five guys who could space the floor and they still sucked just because the talent really wasn't there. But it just opens up so much more in the way of options. And it was pretty, too. It's like I've said this on, on the show before. It's like it was so nice to see something that approximated a modern offense, especially after years of watching Drummond sludge everything up. So you just you really get a lot out of that. And also with the ability to pull out bigs, uh, opposing bigs. Again, Rudy Gobert, you bring up as an example. Uh, it's it's his defense that makes that ostensibly, in most cases, makes up for his uh, his cost on offense. But there was a game earlier in the season in which, uh, in between, it was between the Lakers and the Jazz. And the Lakers, Rudy Gobert was just giving the Lakers fits uh, with JaVale McGee in the game. So Frank Vogel moved Anthony Davis to center. And it's like, oh, well, suddenly Gobert now needs to defend out of the three point line. And thus he can't defend the paint. So now he becomes sort of a liability because his defense isn't making up for his lack of offense. Mm -hmm. So it's just, it's an incredibly valuable skill. And it's been remarkable how quickly, you know, when, now that we've gotten into the spacing era, uh, you know, the Warriors are really a revolutionary team for that. Back in 2015 was when the death lineup began, <clears throat> uh, and that was really revolutionary. And uh, and ever since then, over the course of five years, and, and this really accelerated around, you know, it started in really in particular in 2016 and really accelerated over the next couple of years to the point where now uh, uh, traditional centers are the exception rather than the rule, and they are fast decreasing in number. And a lot of them are are those who have been able to figure out how to do it are now shooting threes. So, yeah, it's just it's an incredibly valuable skill, even as a center now.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Another example, uh, we saw this in 2017 when Cleveland had traded Kyrie Irving, but they still had LeBron. And some of their championship starting lineup was still in place, uh, including a traditional center, Tristan Thompson. But before the year started, they opted to move Kevin Love, who had traditionally played power forward with Cleveland, that is. they, they moved him to the center and they put Tristan Thompson on the bench uh, because Kevin had size, but he was still able to shoot threes. And while he isn't the interior presence that Thompson is, his ability to be on the perimeter opened up driving lanes that made it easier for LeBron to get inside and worry less about Kevin's defender waiting for him at the rim. And in that case, uh, Kevin Love at the five didn't work so well. It's, it's just not going to work for everybody. Uh, and he didn't like the change, but this is, the decision made sense in theory. And that's very telling of the future of the league. Uh, so modern bigs, they just have to be more agile, more mobile, versatile defenders and have something of an offensive game that doesn't take away from uh, or make it harder for their teammates. There are, of course, ex- exceptions to these general rules like Embiid, who even Embiid has uh, a jumper and Jokic, uh, who move a little slower, but they make up for it in various ways.
0: Uh, yeah, as far as switchability goes, uh, that's another way in which uh, the league has just changed a great deal. That a lot of, uh, pretty much every offense league wide makes a concerted effort to get mismatches on switches. <clears throat> so if you have a center who is highly vulnerable uh, to being switched onto by guards, vulnerable in the sense that I mean that if you switch a guard onto him uh, or or a quick small forward, and he can be blown by all the time, he's suddenly a very very significant defensive liability. Mm-hmm. because teams will target him again and again and again. You saw this with DeMarcus Cousins, who after his, his Achilles injury was significantly slower. And the Raptors just, and uh, uh, I believe the Rockets as well, and I believe the Trailblazers too, they just repeatedly targeted him. They would uh, they would run pick plays. They get him switched onto a guard, and he would get breezed by. Uh, and if he wasn't getting breezed by, he would be retreating into the paint. And he'd give up a three-pointer. So... You have to be, you know, it's just so important to have that switchability and it's fine if you aren't great at it, but if you're really bad at it, you're just going to be constantly targeted.
1: Yep. And that's something that we'll talk about with one of these guys later. Uh, certainly. And uh, modern fours, they're they they're kind of taking on a lot of the same uh, duties as these multi-rolled guys who should be able to space the floor and as well as go strong to the basket in a four out one in offense or a five out offense. But They need to be able to hit the three reliably, and it's for them especially. It's even more important. There are guys who who play center, like maybe Aiton, who you don't expect him to shoot a lot of threes, but he can still make like a twelve foot jumper reliably enough that there are still some driving lanes. They're not going to be as clean as for uh, maybe like Timberwolves players, who when Carl Anthony Towns is playing at the center and he's on the three point line, you have to you have to guard him. Uh, So there are a lot of guys. Uh, who are starting to like try to learn that part of their game and honestly I think the the best case for the Pistons is still Christian Wood uh, and we're going to talk about why uh, to start off I'll say that Christian is the benchmark for me uh, even though he's older than these rookies who we could potentially pick uh, 24 isn't bad 24 years old and we've talked a bit about Christian's play style in the last episode but today we'll take a, a deeper look at what Christian does that makes him so effective uh, in these, especially in the last 12 games where he played uh, heavier minutes. Um, Yeah. So Christian plays about half his minutes at the four and half at the five, but personally I see him as a five. Uh, Where do you want him?
0: Oh, absolutely. At the five. Uh, I think, I mean, he spent a lot of his minutes, uh, actually a lot more of his minutes pre-trade at power forward. Uh, largely because Drummond was on the team and still playing a crap load of minutes at center. I mean, Drummond just, uh, I think he played less minutes this year than he had in the past. I uh, Don't quote me on that, but I believe so. I mean, he's hes always been a minute muncher. He's, he's always had the stamina to do that, which was an asset. But uh, after the trade, it took some time, like I said, but but Christian uh, ultimately just ended up as, as, you know, even if he wasn't officially starting at center, Henson would leave uh, after, you know, not so long in the courts, and then Christian would just be the center. And I know you uh, have, you know, uh, really like to reference that uh, wasn't the last was it the last game they played the one against the Sixers I think it was I think think so yeah game of the season, and he was all center in that game. Uh, But I mean, you really he's got all the skills to be a a very effective modern center on offense. I think we talked about this in the last episode. He can uh, he can attack off the dribble against slower centers. He can shoot threes. He's also great on the pick and roll. Amongst qualifying players, so players with enough possessions to qualify, he was tops in the league in pick and roll efficiency at a, uh, for a role man at I think around 1.5 points per possession, which is great. <clears throat> he's efficient. He's just highly efficient at most forms of offense, and that really opens up stuff for you. Now, it also helps that the average center against whom he's playing is going to be significantly slower than he is. So if they are just like half a step away to him at the three-point line, he can either take a three or he pump fakes them. And they're forced to contest, and then he blows by them. And at yep. that point, when the center you know, with the center out of the paint, he's almost invariably going to have uh, a clean look at the basket. I remember one play in particular in which he got the ball at the three-point line. Al Horford, who for all his pillory, is still a very good defender, was just a teensy bit too short, and Christian would pump faked him, and then. You know, Horford responded and that was it. I mean, Christian Wood was by him a half second later. And and Horford didn't even try to go to the basket. He just he knew it was over. And he just he clapped. I, I know exactly which yeah. player you're talking about. He yeah. just he clapped. Just, he's just, like, Oh he got me. Yeah. His shoulders went down and he's like, Whatever. And, and Christian, of course, dumped the ball. Yeah. So and, I, I think I think he's got all the all the tools as a center. Also, you really want him involved in the play. You want him to be the primary role man. I mean, that was another thing with Hansen on the floor. It's like you to have Hanson out of the perimeter he's useless. So so Casey would just use him as the, you know, as the role man. And that didn't matter at that point, really, because the Pistons were not trying to win, but it was still irritating. So you just, you want him involved in the play as much as possible. If you just leave him at the three-point line, he's effective, but you're wasting a lot of what he offers. Also, though, he's not the greatest defender. Uh, he did just fine, as center, you know, at, at center, at power forward. I think he's much less suited to chase guys around the perimeter and to defend from the perimeter on end. So I think absolutely he's a center. <clears throat> uh, it's just you can get you can capitalize on his talents to such a greater degree and minimize his weaknesses by playing in the center
1: yeah yeah uh he gives up some weight against some of these bigger guys but i don't see that being a problem uh he seems athletic enough to play against them and going back to that that you mentioned horford horford a year ago was like the, the best guy at stopping a beat and that was like, like when when the Sixers brought him on and a lot of them knew okay this move doesn't make that much sense for the money but like the main positive reaction from Sixers fans was, Oh, this is the guy who shut down Embiid and Embiid is one of the best centers in the league, but he's still a bigger, slower guy. So for Christian Wood to be able to abuse uh, Horford that easily, uh, d- despite all of Horford's like defensive prowess, it's just, it really speaks to the advantages of playing a, a faster guy uh, as opposed to a bigger guy. Now I, I, th- I know you had, uh, you had mentioned, uh, the The number of post ups that players uh are 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 using these days has significantly decreased. I don't know if you have that offhand
0: but uh, it's basically uh just as as the pace of the game has gone up uh significantly post ups are a very slow form of offense <clears throat> also offenses have gotten more efficient and post ups are not really the most uh, efficient form of offense basically the only reason the the only you're better off kicking your big back to the three-point line and having him shoot threes or just really just have him take more basic shots in the paint because post-ups for most players are just not good enough as far as efficiency goes. (coughs) So there are a pretty small number of players now who actually use post offense uh, as a, as a primary form of offense. So just for reference, I think I'm actually, the last I checked uh, the average points per possession for half court was in, you know, 0.96, 0.98, maybe it's gotten a little bit higher. So, if you're not at that threshold, it's really not ideal to be taking post-ups, and it's most guys are not going to get to that threshold. Like Embiid is a battering ram in the post, The best post player in the league, bar none. The guy averaged 1.12 points per possession on five, you know, and, and uh, he shot, <clears throat> he just shot super well on five possessions a game. So, and he managed to do it with, with a quick enough pace that the that the Pacers were still uh, a league leading, a very good team in terms of pace with him on the floor. Well, Marcus Aldridge has been operating out of the post forever. He's still good enough to make it a viable form of offense. <clears throat> uh, after that, the list really drops off Jokic into it. But whatever the case, you have guys taking a lot less post ups. Like this year, Embiid and Aldridge were the only two guys uh, to average more than uh, four field goal attempts uh, from the post uh, per game. If you go back to 2015, 2016, uh, there were uh, nine of them. One of them was Drummond, unfortunately, uh, who averaged more than four, uh, an additional six who averaged uh, more than three. So, I mean, it's just it's really just started to disappear. That's one thing that Christian Wood is not a good post player, but it's fine. You don't have to be a good post player. And uh, also, you mentioned that he gives up a lot of weight to some centers. That's okay now, too. I mean, you live with that. Your era of big, beefy centers is gone uh, because, like you said, these guys have to be quick now. Embiid manages to do it. Like, I don't know how, but any defense in which he's on the floor is much better. <clears throat> but, uh, you know, it, it's an era. Like, if Dirk Nowitzki had come into the league five years later, he would have probably spent his last five years as a center, just because that would have been the position in which he was most fitted, most fit. rather. Mm-hmm. Of course, <laughs> you know, they won the championship nine years ago. That was a team with three shooters on the floor because they were playing Sean Marion and Tyson Chamber. It would never work now, but...
1: Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah. I mean, you go back and you even watch, like, the Miami Heat. Highlights. It, it looks like a completely different game back then. They played so much lower. They were taking long twos. The League has changed a lot, and you. It's kind of gradual, but when you look at it like that far back out, it doesn't seem like it's that long ago. But a lot has changed certainly, and oh, a uh, ton. And yeah.
0: it, it really picked up in 2015, I think. And it's the, the league has just changed tremendously in yeah. the last five years. Just a paradigm shift.
1: Yep. And that's another thing. I think it's probably more important. Now to be able to defend the pick and roll because it's such a, a heavy tool. That's it's a it's a tool that's used very heavily rather uh, in today's league. And Christian Wood is really good at that. Uh, opponents average only point nine one points per possession, which is eighty fifth percentile. He's good at reading the offense and reacting, and he uses his length to contest. And he was able to switch onto smaller guards when necessary, and that's probably more more useful than however much weight he's giving up in the post and stopping guys like joel Embiid, when he's able to just pull those guys out to the three-point line and make them pay from distance and that leads right into his offense and he's got a great mix of size speed and length in the pick and roll he's quick and he can go up and get it with good hands and adjust in the air but uh he's also able to abuse some of these weaker bigs with his deceptively strong frame and he's able to push his way inside using a great first step he's not trying to beat these guys so much with uh his weight, but his his explosiveness and his, his, his first step is really, really good for him. And uh, he takes long strides and he goes up and he tries to jam it on whoever is there. Uh, and there's a particular play against OKC where we saw him pull Nerland's Noel out to the three-point line. And Wood took advantage of his outward momentum and he took it inside. And Noel was just kind of on his hip, like kind of off balance, just trying to keep up. Uh, but Wood went up and dunked it on Noel and the OKC help defender who came off of Seiko, you know, he's, he's that powerful. And that same game, uh, he got the, he got the offensive rebound against Steven Adams and Steven Adams is, he's a brick wall. Christian would couldn't power his way uh, through him straight, straight up. So he, so Christian backed him out to near the three point line. And Adams had to follow because he had, he respects Christian's jump shot. And then once Christian took him like far away out enough, uh, he put his shoulder into Adams on the drive. And Adams was knocked off balance, and he was kind of out of bounds, and Christian goes up for the easy dunk, and he finished that game with 29 points and nine rebounds. Uh, And then referencing that Sixers game again, uh, Wood blocked Embiid twice with his length. Uh, One of them was on an Embiid jump shot. Now, Embiid has a pretty slow release, but he's able to – it's slow because his release is so high because Joel Embiid is such a tall player. Uh, And like you said, he played – Primarily center in that game, and he still finished with six dunks against a, def- a defensive front court rotation of Embiid and Horford and O'Quinn. And uh, that's fantastic. Uh, but I think his best game that kind of showcased his skills was against the Jazz, which was earlier that week in this last week of the season, uh, where that game he finished with 30 points and seven dunks against Rudy Gobert. And it was guys like Svi and Bruce who were able to take advantage of the wide open paint that they were never able to get while Drummond was on the court, because he's always there and Gobert is always going to be right there and he's going to he's going to stop uh, the drives. But when Christian Wood is waiting on the three point line, somebody has to be out there with him, or else it's just going to be an easy kick out and it's potentially a wide open three. And so Rudy Gobert has to kind of leave, and that makes it easier for guys who ordinarily wouldn't get uh, such an easy driving lane. Uh, But they got that with Christian Wood. And this is against two-time defensive player of the year, Rudy Gobert. And Wood finished with seven dunks. Uh, And I I say this because I think the Pistons may have stumbled onto the future of big men and Christian Wood. And for a team that doesn't need to spend big and is rebuilding, uh, trying to keep Wood seems like the obvious choice. Uh, the only questions are his work ethic and his drive. Once he gets a big contract, you know, we saw—we kind of saw with Whiteside. Uh, once he got that four-year, eighty-million-dollar contract, his his effort kind of fell off a little bit. And you kind of—you just kind of have to hope that that doesn't happen with Christian. Uh, personally, I would be—I would be fine with Christian getting twelve to fifteen, maybe, maybe more than that, because the Pistons really don't. Need to try to win now. They don't really need all their cap space for to sign guys to win right now. Uh, what's your what's your what's your number for him?
0: I would say I would max out at fifteen million a year. Uh, I'd, I'd like to see him get about fourteen a year on a front-loaded deal because the Pistons really don't need cap space now. But by year three or four of that deal, they could definitely benefit from it. <clears throat> so, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's. I think you, you you pretty much just have to try to keep him not only because he's the kind of building block you really want to have, but because, you know, just really need somebody exciting to watch. So yep. I think they will try to keep him. My concern about Wood is, is similar to yours. I, I'm not worried about his work ethic. I think he's got strong drive to compete. I'm kind of concerned he'll become a malcontent. Uh, I, I think he's still got that in him. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> there, were, there were all these worries about his attitude, and I, I don't think that those have necessarily entirely been solved. Maybe Dwayne Casey has been a very good uh, – uh, influence uh, but I, I'm just not sure but that said I think you need to take the risk and if you blow it then you know you're stuck with a bad contract for the last two years of his deal it doesn't really matter all that much so I, I think you gotta you really just kind of gotta try to keep him and yeah, I think I mean, he will stay in Detroit just because the, the number of teams that can really make a competitive, a competitive offer assuming that he does want to get paid is relatively small and I, I don't Think those other teams necessarily have much more to offer than the Pistons as far as winning anytime soon, uh, which, which seems to uh, seems to be something that's on his mind based on what he's tweeted. <clears throat> yeah, but uh, yeah. In any event, I'd, I'd say at this point, why don't we uh, why don't we transition toward the draft? And yeah, I know we won't know until after the draft whether or not Wood will actually be with the team because they can't extend his contract right now. Uh, just because of how it fits into the CBA. So they, they will have to do so after free agency begins. And I think I don't think they'll take a big regardless, but definitely if they think that they'll be keeping him, then the chance, I believe, goes to basically zero.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So let's move on to the draft. Uh, as we said, it's going to be the big men in the draft, three of them in particular. Just uh, something I'd like to note, a couple of things I'd like to note. Uh, number one, uh, the mock drafts are, are a very... Convenient thing, you know, very, very just convenient. It's convenient information for people who don't want to do the research themselves. Uh, we've really moved into a journalism uh, of what, what I've seen others just call it uh, click journalism, which is basically that instead of media outlets paying like highly qualified, tenured writers, you know, with the exception of like ESPN, they still pay Lowe. for example. He's, I think, the best basketball writer there is. But for the most part like Forbes and CBS and whoever else, uh, they're just paying independent contractors, uh, and their goal is just to get as many collects as possible. But just basically the 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 upshot of that is that they um is that the quality of it may not be particularly good. And I think the average mock draft uh just maybe this comes off a little harsh, but I think the average mock draft is crap. Certainly the case for the Pistons, which is I would say most important for the purposes of those who are listening to this podcast. <laughs> The vast majority of mock drafts I have seen, either the the writer either uh, does not does not done his research on the players, has not done his research on team needs, which is especially the case for the Pistons, or just doesn't really get uh, the modern NBA. You know, like just just makes suggestions that that don't make any sense. Like like oh you know D'Angelo Russell and Carl Anthony Towns can shoot, so it'd be fine to put Melo out with them. It's like no, he's still a liability if he can't shoot you know, also D'Angelo Russell really needs the ball. <clears throat> so, uh, I've, when it comes to the Pistons, the player I've seen mocked on the most often is, is uh, a Kong And it's basically this sort of caveman logic that's, Oh, uh, you know, you can basically sum it up in six words. It's like drum and gone, need center draft a Kong <laughs> And it doesn't take into account where the Pistons are as far as, uh, you know, needing players with upside. It doesn't take into account, you know, do they really want to draft the center with this pick right now? when they need high upside player. It it doesn't take into account where they need, you know, where they are in, in terms of, you know, they're at the very beginning of a rebuild. A lot of these writers seem to believe the Pistons are still trying to win every year. And it's like, Oh, this guy will help immediately. It's like, it doesn't, Oh, so I've seen some of them say like, oh, he'd also be really good fit with Blake Griffin. And it's like, A, the Pistons probably could not care less about who will be a good fit with Blake Griffin at this point, because I'm not trying to win. He just kinda happens to be here until they other move him or his contract expires. Also, it'd be a crap fit with Griffin because he can't shoot. You know, your center who actually works with Griffin is a guy who can shoot. And that is not a Kong Wu at this point. Sure. So my point is If you're reading these mock drafts, just don't put too much stock into them because a lot of the time these guys have, at least where the Pistons are concerned, if not overall, they're not very good at, in my opinion, just not very good at their jobs. If you want the best uh, draft analysis you can get, and no, we are not sponsored. Uh, I'm I'm plugging this because I I feel that they're very... Very few good writers out there who write on the draft. There's Sam Viceni from The Athletic, and I, I believe they're offering all sorts of free trials right now. So if you want to get somebody who actually does the proper analysis and has been in the business for a long time, uh, go with that. So in any event, uh, when we're talking, the uh, second thing I'd like to I just like to note, when we're talking about uh, draft picks, you really have to contextualize it as far as how these guys did in the NCAA level is at the NCAA level. And it's drastically different at the NBA level. I mean, the competition, you go from, you know, don't get me wrong. Everybody who plays in the NCAA is a pretty darn good basketball player compared to the average person, but in the NBA, it's the best, of the best, of the best, the worst player in the NBA is an incredible basketball player. Uh, I mean, that, that can get a little bit less true when you're just talking about traditional centers who are there because they can set screens and play decent defense and roll to the basket. But like, uh, you know, any of you scrubs can go out there with Thon Maker and he'll destroy you. Not just because he's tall, because he's much more talented than you are. And he's a disaster at the NBA level. So <laughs> I remember, I'm not sure how many of you guys know about this. there's uh, uh, a player named Brian Scalabrini. He was a very likable guy, not a good NBA player. And uh, he, he won a, a championship with the Celtics. And he was asked at the press conference, uh, you know, uh, I know you won a championship, but you didn't play any minutes in the finals. So how do you feel about this? And Scalbrini who just big smile on his face, said something along the lines of, "Well, I'm just going to tell my grandchildren that I played like 40 minutes a game." <laughs> so <laughs> the point is that he was he was kind of a joke at the NBA level, and yeah. so people would this you know, the given that he played in Boston, I mean, people would after he retired were just shit talking him. He was a guy who never took himself seriously. Uh, they called him the the White Mamba, which was just kind of like a uh, you know poking fun uh, reference to to COVID, you know to the dearly departed Kobe Bryant's, the Black Mamba. <clears throat> so, after he retired, I mean, people talk shit. So he said, "Okay, I'm I'm gonna set up at this gym." He did it in conjunction with this radio station. Said, "I'm gonna set up at this gym. You can come and play against me. We'll call it the Scallenge. And he just, you know, he, he just destroyed everybody. Who came up against him. This is a guy who was bad in the NBA, and I think hadn't been playing for like three years at that point. And uh, nobody stood chance. Like, like nobody. Even even guys who were you know, by any standard, more athletic than he was. I mean, because if you play in the NBA, you were an, an amazing basketball player. So, but the NCAA level, I mean, you have a lot of guys. Uh, I mean, you have basically two categories. You have your guys who are NBA capable, and then you have your, your guys who definitely aren't, and that's the vast majority of the NBA. The NCAA has no hope of making the NBA, and they get victimized by these guys who who can, especially the guys who can physically overpower them. <clears throat> you can look at Henry Ellenson, for example. I mean, you got a lot of bigs, uh, these kind of unwieldy bigs, uh, who can dominate because they can do really well at least because they have some skill and they're bigger than everybody else. Like you look at Henry Allenson, who did pretty well at Marquette but had no MBA upside. <laughs> yep. You know, uh, he's you know he's maybe a slightly extreme example, but uh, basically what I'm saying if if you look at how well they're doing in the NCAA, you have to you have to contextualize that, and that's definitely come into play with. Uh, the first player we're going to speak on, who is uh, Onyeko Kongwu, I believe I'm pronouncing that properly. Yep. So, uh, yeah, why don't you uh, take it away with your impressions of Kongwu?
1: Yeah, so he's probably the closest thing to a traditional center in this draft, uh, but he's kind of smaller, and that's what kind of makes him intriguing. Uh, A lot of mocks have him at the top, and I think if you want to play it safe and protect your rep, a Kongwu seems like a kind of guy whose more limited skill set has a really good chance of translating to the NBA which let I me mean, I'll just say this now like there is really no writers who get every who like analyze players and picks and potential even close to like completely right uh, it's just impossible to do you you don't know there's so many factors that go into how well a player will translate and you you only you can only do so much and uh I'll just say that the reason we think that, I, I mean personally anyway, uh, that I think is mocked so high is because his floor is decent and his ceiling is just not that high above that. Uh, he, he's the safest choice. And Okongwu is kind of like the player that Drummond should have been. He's just a great defensive player who can catch lobs. He doesn't need the ball in his hands, but he still has a nice touch around the rim when it's there. Uh, He's got nice spin moves and a soft touch and he can finish with either hand. Uh, What he can't do though is space. And I've mentioned this before and we kind of alluded to it earlier. You can only have really one fit dependent player on the floor. Maybe two, if you have like two really exceptional uh, fit dependent players or uh, two exceptional talents. Uh, But I don't think a Kong is, is ever going to be that guy that's like worth building around, but if the pistons fall and and they think that he's the best option this is a guy who uh, i think is a reasonable choice physically he's 6 foot 9 he is a 7 foot 2 he thinks he has a 7 foot 2 wingspan that's his words i don't think he's gotten the official measurements yet uh and 6 foot 9 sounds kind of small for a center but combined with his leaping ability and instinct uh that's what makes him a good all-around defender and he really is a very good defender he's got quick feet on the perimeter uh, and he's able to make good reads in the post. And he does a nice job staying down on fakes. Uh, and he picks his spots nicely to prevent dump-off passes to cutters while still showing presence to discourage discourage dunks and floaters. Uh, he gets comp to bam out of bio a lot. Uh, and that excited me initially because Miami's really good. And they run probably my favorite offense. It's so just a really nice driving kick. And I figured having our own bam would be great. And I watched Bam's highlights and, and and looked at his stats to get a, a better idea of his fit with Miami. And I noticed that he, he basically doesn't shoot threes, but he still draws perimeter coverage. Uh, so he's out of the three-point line and guys follow him. So I actually went to the Heat subreddit and I, I made a post asking about it. And they said what he can do is act as a hub for their offense and he can make passes to cutters. And that's enough to draw the opposing four or five out of the paint. Uh I don't know that a Kongu can do that. Uh, he had, I think, twice as many turnovers as assists. But I think Bam also did uh, at that stage in uh, his career. But I, I really don't have any. I have very little faith that he would be able to develop this skill at least, like within like the first four years. We saw Drummond actually flash a, a nice, like kind of pocket passing game. Uh, but it's it's a risk, and I don't think that's one that you can bank on when you make that selection. You can't. I don't think you can make that uh, selection with that in mind, but I have even less faith in him developing a jump shot within the next few years. Uh, what are your thoughts on Okongwu? Uh,
0: I would say in the first place that I think the, the mocks to Bam are kind of silly. Uh, the, excuse me, the comparisons to Bam uh, are pretty silly, basically. I think that it's a bit of a lazy... Just, a, just a, a lazy way of, uh, of drawing uh, equivalence by, by certain writers. It's like, okay, here's a guy who's about Bam size. He also plays center. You know, he's also really athletic, and he can switch on defense. It's like, okay, all well, those guys are valuable. Now, what makes Bam considerably more valuable is that, A, his defense is really, really good at the NBA level. Of course, you never know if a Kong going to be that good. But, B, he's a great passer. I mean, that's a big deal. He's a really, really? good passer. Uh, he's, he's a unique player. And we've seen no indication that Okongwu can do something like that. And uh, I, I feel like they're saying, oh, well, he's got similar physical attributes to Bam. So, you know, cool. He'll develop that. It's like, no, most players don't develop that. <laughs> especially especially at that position. They just, they don't. So it's a kind of case where it's like, okay, it's conceivably possible that he could be Bam. But we're talking about a guy who's an all-star this year. I mean, that's that's a pretty big reach, I think. <clears throat> but when it comes to Okongwu himself... Uh like I said, he's the guy most mocked to the Pistons. And like I said, that doesn't matter at all. <clears throat> but he's a guy who was was very good, but not uh not great in college. Uh he's gonna be just he's young, which is nice. He just passed uh 19 at the start of next season. <clears throat> so yeah, really good defense at the NTAA level. He's, he's switchable, he's very athletic. Uh he's he's a good shot blocker, good rim protector. And like you said, really good on the pick and roll, pretty good touch inside the paint. And I would say right now he projects is just a traditional big with the high floor, but probably not a great ceiling given that he doesn't seem to have much talent as a scorer. Others are going to have to do his work for him. Mm-hmm. So he also played well out of the post at the NCAA level again. And, and also in in, uh, in terms of his efficiency, which is amongst the best, uh, which is amongst the best in the NCAA. It's like, yeah, in the post, it's helpful that, A, you don't have to worry about pace as much in the NCAA, which is just much more slowly paced. Also, this is a six foot nine, 245 pound, highly athletic guy uh, who's generally posting up on guys who have no hope uh, of defending him and, and banging in the paint against guys who are just much less athletic than he is. So the cons, yeah, like you said, and no perimeter shot. That's a really big opportunity cost. Yeah. He had some, yeah, he had, uh, he showed a little bit in terms of mid range jumpers. So like, but only, the, only in the sense that, okay, the guy has a jumper at all, and it's not hideously ugly, but he was bad at them. <clears throat> you know, he, he shot them very low. So uh, basically it's possible that a Kongu, what you have right now, is, is what you're going to get and in, in a way that's, that's a good thing for, for certain teams because I think the skills, his skills are going to translate really well into coming into the NBA, not post-offense. And, and like I said, I doubt he'll be as efficient. I think that's pretty much out of the question. At least in the short term, he's, he's not gonna be bullying guys like that in the NBA. But if you have a guy who can defend the paint, who's switchable on defense, who can who can uh, set good screens and roll hard to the rim and has a decent touch in the paint, you're always gonna have a place in a rotation in the NBA <clears throat> also you know he's, he's apparently he's got a good work ethic and, uh, and and good energy, and those are those are basically necessary if you're gonna want to be assured of a job in the NBA as well but the the thing is that that could be all he ever is. And that's fine for a team that already has the pieces, but the Pistons don't already have those important pieces. Uh, I, I think if, if you're the Pistons, like I don't think you draft the center. Period. Even if Christian Wood leaves, because it's the least important position, none of these guys seem to be game-changing elite talents. Uh, you don't want to... You know, you, you, it's really not okay for the center to be the best player on your team anyway. Like unless maybe he's Jokic, who is one of a kind. Uh, you just the most important players in the NBA are your elite point guards and your elite wings. And the Pistons have been terrible in both of those categories forever. Like the last good wing the Pistons had was Rip Hamilton, and you know, as, as good as he was and as beloved as he was, he wasn't really elite. Uh, at least as a scorer, uh, as good, you know, good defender, but he wasn't one of those guys who's, who's likely to really take over games. He did at times. I know. Don't. Uh, I know there are a lot of guys who really love going to work. A lot of people who really love going to work Pistons, and so did I. But nonetheless the uh, Pistons haven't had a good wing in forever. The best they've had in, like since 2008 was probably Marcus Morris for one season. And uh, as far as elite point guards, the best you got was, was Richard Jackson for one season. And he was good but not great and played in a way that was never going to allow the Pistons to succeed. But it's it's like been such a long time that I think us as Pistons fans have kind of forgotten what it is to have an elite point guard or to have uh, good wings. And I think the Pistons really just need to take a gamble on somebody at those positions, at one of those positions who has a lot of upside. So <clears throat> um so yeah, I already said what I think uh Adebayo's floor is like his floor is probably backup center. I'd say his NBA ceiling is maybe like top ten center, like eight, nine, ten. Uh if he can really really become a great defender and if he can develop a jump shot. Uh beyond that, I just don't think he has enough talent to really place any higher than that. Uh do you disagree at all on, on the floor and ceiling?
1: Uh, not the floor and ceiling. I would just say that I do. I do like the Bam comp because, I mean, yeah, he's not as explosive as Bam. He's not. That's
0: uh, the passing mm, for me?
1: Yeah, it's yeah, certainly not the passing, and that's that's absolutely critical to Bam's game, and it's the reason that he works so well in Miami's offense. Uh, and the other thing that I I do like, and this isn't just a Kongwu, uh, this is going to become more important for like, pretty much all future centers. I'm I'm thinking. He really is a very very good perimeter defender especially he can he can hedge pick and rolls very effectively and in, in the NCAA at least he was able to like kind of kill them before they even got got going because he was that agile so that's that's one of the reasons that I have him he's probably my favorite center in this draft uh despite the fact that he's uh like more of a real traditional big uh the the, the other guy who's kind of like right there with him probably would be my favorite center in this draft if we knew more about him. And you might already know who I'm talking about. It's, uh, James Wiseman. Uh, did you have anything else you wanted to add about Okongwu? Uh,
0: not really beyond that. Uh, and if I would have a big board for the Pistons, uh, he wouldn't even be the top center on it. I just, I really don't want the guy in the Pistons as, as good as, you know, as, as... I always like a good character guy and he seems like he would be that, but, I just – I don't think he's at all what the Pistons are looking for right now. Mm-hmm. You
1: know, on my board, I have him uh, – right now, anyway, I have him eighth. Uh, but depending on need, I might, there are other guys who might kind of slot higher who maybe have a lower – or, a high, uh, yeah, lower ceiling, but maybe they'll fit better. But if that's it, uh, another guy we can well,
0: – I will say one – I will say I do disagree. Just as a final point, I do disagree a, a little bit on, on definitely uh, – projecting him as a good perimeter defender in the NBA, just because, I mean, the guys who are playing with the NBA are are so much better, uh, you know, are so much quicker. Like, uh, defending at the perimeter on, uh, like, you know, your average NCAA point guard, even the best NCAA point guards is one thing. Uh, If you are switched on by uh, to Trey Young or Damian Willard uh, or Kemba Walker uh, or even Derek Rose, these guys who can just easily blow past you, I mean, your job becomes a great deal more difficult. As that's just true. a center out in the perimeter. Yeah. So, and I think uh, that's another place where Adebayo is quite good, and that makes him an anomaly. Again, just Adebayo is an anomaly amongst centers. This is why I object to the comparisons of really anybody to him who has not demonstrated his his all-around talents. Mm. But, yeah, uh, let move on to Wiseman.
1: Yeah, uh, definitely worth mentioning. And uh, a lot of people don't want him because he – he might be the other guy who's like the closest thing to an old school center in this draft. And I agree with that somewhat. And there's a real challenge knowing what he can bring to the NBA, because we only saw him play three games uh, at Memphis before he was suspended and dropped out to focus on NBA training. And I don't blame him after that really stupid situation, honestly. But uh, physically he's a beast, seven foot one, seven foot six wingspan, nine foot four standing reach. But drafting him is that is a gamble because you don't know if his dominance is going to translate to the NBA with size. Uh, he's got a very similar play style and frame to a young Joel Embiid. Uh, but he has some of the same criticisms as Drummond, which is like the lack of pla- uh, passion and uh, playing long rather than strong. But maybe that's not even the worst thing because Wiseman has that length. Uh, it's it's really the work ethic issues that are just reported, honestly. Uh, but in in his games those three games he only played 69 minutes and he dominated weaker competition uh, you even mentioned earlier uh, two of them were just yeah, like really yeah, really
0: subpar you don't think yeah you don't think highly of the you know the basketball powerhouses that are South Carolina State University and University of Illinois Chicago <laughs> i mean yeah those, yeah those it's it's basically bottom of the barrel his bottom of the barrel as he gets in division 1 he played one game against oregon uh, which i believe they ended as a nationally ranked team and uh, he wasn't quite as he still played pretty well, but he he wasn't nearly as dominant.
1: Yeah, and, and the concerns with Wiseman in terms of translating to the league uh, they go back to his his speed. Really, he's not the fastest guy, and he plays long in a way that NBA talent might give him trouble. Uh, and as the league gets smaller, he might he might be able to capitalize on that if he keeps up with the faster pace. But I I can really only think of one play uh, where he really got up the floor in transition, like. Like, really quickly. And we've even seen, you know, Drummond do that. And he was not the fastest guy up the court at, really at all. But Drummond did have a bad habit. Yeah, I guess you. that's maybe a matter of opinion of holding the ball after he got the rebound. And I feel like that gave the opposing defense time to set up on the other end and kind of killed our transition game. Uh, so I you don't agree. want that. Yeah. So, yeah, definitely. Yeah, uh, he,
0: he actually he nerfed himself a bit. Because, I mean, that the advantage ostensibly of having a guy who – who snared all your rebounds rather than rebounding by committee, which has its own advantages, was like, okay, now guys can just run out really quickly and transition, but that never worked for the Pistons because Mm. Drummond would either just cradle the rebound for a couple of seconds before handing it off to Reggie Jackson, the worst transition guard, (laughs) probably (laughs) the worst starting transition guard in the league. Uh, uh, Or he would launch a a Hail Mary pass, which would almost invariably get intercepted, or he would bring the ball up himself, which was almost as bad. (laughs) <laughs> so
1: yeah yeah no I, I that's in the transition game it's it's probably less important in the playoffs you don't see it as much but in the regular season that's huge you definitely want to be a good transition team it's one of the best forms of offense and it's getting more and more important uh the, however there there is a key difference from drummond that we've kind of seen uh and that is that wiseman does seem to have a jump shot and the only reason that i i can't put too much stock in it is because we only saw it in his second and third games and he only made a few shots with it and it, I don't even it's probably not even worth looking at the percentages because that sample size is just too small uh, but if he is for real with his if that's like a real weapon that he has in his arsenal and he can actually draw defense away uh, and be useful in a way that like DeAndre Ayton is and uh, Ayton shoots like 32% of his shots from more than 10 feet out and we've seen that uh, that distance is—it's enough that guys like Booker and Oubre have been able to get to the basket, whereas with Drummond, uh, who's really not a threat from like more than six feet out, uh, he, he really clogs the paint. And uh, if Wiseman's jumper is for real, that's great. But I mean, he, he, we, we we were looking at like highlights from his high school where he was shooting uh, these jumpers because. There just isn't that much film uh so with his physical tools, he has the potential to be a great defensive player uh he talks about his defense a lot, but uh it's gonna it's gonna count on him maintaining his agility and if God forbid there's a an injury that takes away his athleticism i mean that's that's really gonna hurt him and uh he's he's kind of skinny for a big guy, and maybe he gets pushed around by. Uh, some of the more physical bigs, but like we mentioned with Christian earlier, that's probably going to be less and less important as time goes on. But I don't think he'll be able to guard elite driving players. Uh, but a step or two closer, I think he'll be acceptable on the perimeter. But it's it's not something I, I, I want to rely on. Uh, and in his interview with Mike Schmitz, and by the way, this is one of my favorite ways uh, to see or to do the, the research on these guys because Mike interviews these guys. And he asked them like, you know, about their work ethic, uh, how they train. It's just a really, really great way to uh learn about these players. So, like they, they range between like twenty-five to forty minutes per guy and they're great. Uh Wiseman said that he puts up three hundred to five hundred shots a day when he works out. So it's clearly something that he wants to be part of his, his game. Uh the hope with him is that he gets close to a Joel Embiid who's like a bigger physical player who can uh work around the rim. Uh or Anthony Davis at the five type of player where they both have like serviceable jump shots. Uh, I currently have him ninth on my board because of the limitations, the fit dependency. He's another guy who's definitely going to be fit dependent, you know, because he's going to be the slowest guy, uh, most likely on, on in your lineup. And, uh, if, but if he can put it all together, he, there's a chance that he's a very special player. And that's why you see him getting mocked as a top three guy, but there are certainly risks with worse risk with him, uh, what are your thoughts on Wiseman? Uh,
0: I would say he's, he's clearly a guy with a very uh, formidable physical gifts, but the data is just not there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you, you have very little in the way of minutes at the NCAA level. Just the jump from high school to the NCAA is gigantic. The jump from the NCAA to the NBA is gigantic. And you have, for, for all intents and purposes, like no data in between those those steps. So, uh <clears throat> Entirely possible, he just projects as a very athletic, traditional big. Maybe he develops a shot that would be big, but again, it's just who knows. Attitude is questionable. Maybe you would have learned more about that if he had played an entire year at Memphis, but who knows?
1: <laughs> so
0: yeah. I think it's like you said, guy with great athleticism, great size, great reach. He's quick for his size. Uh, maybe he can be an elite rim protector and a paint protector. He seems to be good as a shot blocker, at least again at, at the high school level. Uh, like it's just so much like a lack of data for a guy who's very raw makes it so difficult to make any sort of uh, any sort of real evaluation. Yeah. And you you watch his highlights. He's, he his
1: his length is insane and he just, you really see it. And he really plays that uh, he he takes advantage of that rather. I mean, I think there was one game uh, at Memphis where he had like six blocks, but it wasn't the best competition, but if he, if he can, learn to use that length to his advantage because he's going to be taller than like the bulk of his competition on it, obviously. But, uh, so it, because of that, in my mind, I think Wiseman has the higher ceiling, uh, but Okongwu seems like more of the sure thing with the lower ceiling, maybe a higher floor. So that's, that's the only reason I haven't like, honestly, like neck and neck, but I think Okongwu has the edge for me because he's, more of a sure thing. I know that, uh, you're of the your opinion. I know you don't really want a center at all, but I understand the, the, uh, the idea that we should kind of swing for the fences here, maybe take the riskier player.
0: Uh, what are your yeah, thoughts? I, would, I mean, I would just say, <clears throat> again, it's just like, you don't know, uh, ability, you know, like you said, whether or not he can develop a jumper is huge. You have the, the questions about work ethic and motor. I think that his ceiling is certainly higher than a Okongwu's. I think a Kongwu is kind of what you see is what you're likely to get. Maybe some improvement. Maybe you can you can develop a jumper. But I think this is just basically what you see. I think Wiseman maybe has the potential to be elite uh, just based on what his assets appear to be. Uh, certainly, you'll be able to translate some of those to the NBA right away, like a screener, a rim runner, probably as a paint defender, though I think he'll probably be very foul prone at least to start. But beyond that, it's just difficult to know at all what we're looking at. So I'd say he's a risky player. He might end up being a project, uh, you know, notwithstanding what's a, you know, a considerable degree of talents he, he allegedly possesses. <clears throat> now, as far as his ceiling, I hate to keep saying this, hard to say. Like if he really capitalizes on his talent, develops jump shots, and there are no issues with his motor, he could be a top five center. Uh, mm-hmm. His floor? I would say boss potential, especially if you have a guy who, who only has the skills of a traditional center and has, uh, and turns out to be, uh, an emotional malcontent just with a bad attitude, a bad motor, those guys can flunk out of the NBA. So I would say his, his applicability to the Pistons is, is, is just a no <clears throat> again, for the same reasons as a Kong Also for me, because on a personal level, I really, really don't want to draft a highly athletic, but very raw, traditional big who has concerns over maturity, work ethic, and motor to replace the, Guy, whom the Pistons just dumped after after a long but protracted period uh, in which he was really not all that incredibly effective, who was, when he came into the league, an extremely athletic but very raw traditional big with questions over work ethic, maturity, and motor. I just don't want us to be subjected to that again. Uh, I'd be more inclined, nonetheless, to shoot high on Wiseman rather than pick a Kong Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's a situation in which that just because of ceiling and that's position, that, that situation in which the Pistons are picking a center, which as I've said, I think is quite unlikely, uh, yeah. but it's a risk. I don't think a yep. Kong will bust. Wiseman could conceivably bust. It's not out of the question. Yeah. Uh, so I believe that takes us on to, to, Toppin, Toppin. Yep. to Toppin.
1: Yep. Obi Toppin is a 22 year old, six foot nine power forward. Uh, played a little bit of center with a six foot eleven wingspan who shot up the draft boards this year uh, after making a leap as a scorer. Uh, he was overpowering opponents with some nice footwork near the hoop and gaining attention is probably the best dunker in the draft. Uh, he averaged one three-point make per game on 39% shoot, uh, from, from distance. Uh, I see him as kind of a combination of old and young Blake Griffin. Uh, he, he possesses some of the leaping and dunking of a young Blake Griffin but he has that slow three ball release and some of the passing chops of current Blake but nothing special uh the real issue i have with him and this is why i'm kind of i see him like at like sometimes at like top 2 on mock drafts and i just can't see that i've been wrong on guys before where like i don't think their athleticism is going to translate and i don't i don't think he's it's going to be worth it with uh, Topping, because, one, his three-point volume is fairly low and maybe the the Pistons don't play that much in transition and that's kind of where he needs to be to take full advantage of his explosiveness. Uh, but his defense is just such a mess on the perimeter. His lack of lateral quickness and agility, it hurts him everywhere when he's trying to read opposing players. He can't switch onto wings or he'll cause a defensive breakdown. His skinny legs and high center of gravity make him ineffective as a post player or a defensive post player. Uh, And I personally don't even have him in my top nine Uh, with his age. I'd be surprised if it wasn't a factor for a team that's just now starting a rebuild. That's to say, you don't want to start your rebuild with a 22 year old. Uh, And there's also the chance that his three ball regresses. And then he really has very little except for his explosive dunking. I, he misses, His misses were bad, uh, and it doesn't seem like he's going to have the easiest time getting that slow shot release. I don't think he's going to get that off very easily in the NBA. And we, we've we talked kind of at length about how important it is to be able to switch on the perimeter, and he's kind of stiff with his defense out there. And uh, I, I just don't like that part of his game at all. I, I think... He needs to increase his volume on threes and improve his burst so he can be part of a good uh, drive and kick offense that will allow him to get his dunks in the the half court. But he's worth mentioning because like I said, mocks have him super high and maybe they're saying something I don't see. And he's worth mentioning just in case the Pistons do see something in him. Uh, I don't have much else to say about Toppin. I just, I don't really like his game. There's, not a whole lot of center, uh like or big man talent in this draft. I mean, the next guy would probably be like Alexei Pokusevsky, and he's rail thin. I mean, I think he's like 180 pounds, seven foot two or something like that. He's he's going to be like the ultimate project. I don't think the Pistons want to do another draft and stash unless somebody is I somebody's mean, agent.
0: Yeah, a tour as well, but. <clears throat> I mean, he's going to be, unless, you know, barring him becoming like a revelation, I don't really see him going in the top 10, but I don't, uh, honestly, to be honest, just to, I I don't know a great deal about him, but you're right. That's just the, the amount of big man talent in this draft is, is, I mean, it's fairly spare, at least in the first round, but uh, yeah, with Toppin, I would say I, I can't agree with the Blake Griffin comp. I mean, it's, it's easy, I think, to forget now because Blake, Blake was an athletic monster. I mean, he was super quick. He was his incredible leaper. He was incredibly explosive. I mean, a young, just young Blake Griffin before all the injuries. You know, he's just he was unbelievable. He was just he was a freakish athlete. Mm-hmm. I don't think that that Toppin really approaches that. Especially, I've heard it put well that his, his explosiveness is more just in terms of power rather than quickness. He's not really the quickest player. And and comparing him to Blake, he's I don't think he's anywhere near the passer. Uh, he's no. anywhere near the offensive creator. He just he's not that great at creating his own offense. Uh, longer arms, though. I remember people <laughs> joking that Blake should have gone to the Raptors because of his T-Rex arms. <coughs> so, <laughs> uh, in any event, I would say with Toppin, uh, just as far as where he'll where I think he's most likely to end up, you've got only two teams. I would say maybe Golden State because they're a team that'll be looking for talent that can help now. Though I don't think they're really the greatest uh, unless they plan on pulling him off the bench uh, because you've got Draymond playing power forward, of course, and unless they plan to play him long-term at center, which I doubt. But, you know, maybe they see him as useful place off the bench. <clears throat> I mean, that that's one thing that, that should be noted is that you can't plug him in as, as, as small forward. He's just he's not fast enough, particularly on defense. He'll get roasted. Mm-hmm. And it's no good to have a guy who's limited to just... Uh, your average forward can play both forward positions and that's nice to have guys you can play either slightly up or slightly down the lineup top. It's probably going to be limited to power forward period, less whatever spot minutes, maybe he sees in a small ball five lineup. <laughs> I don't think he's really flashed any acuity as a rim protector, or pain protector though. And certainly he'll be, he'll be a switch risk no matter which position he plays. You'll have yep. guys trying to switch on him and those guards will beat him. Yep. that's so, That's my biggest uh,
1: issue with him. He's going to get attacked. Yeah. He's going to be the guy who, if you pull him out to the perimeter, switch him onto a guard, he's he's the guy who's going to, you know, cause defensive breakdowns. Unless he can like loosen up his hips or something, he's just he's just not he good out there.
0: Yeah, I just don't think he has the quickness. Period. <clears throat> yep. So, like, if you look at, at the best forwards in the league, I mean, you have very few guys who cannot play at both forward positions. And and maybe this doesn't sound like as much of a big deal as it is, but it is. I think it is a big deal. Blake Griffin is also one of those odd players who can really only play power forward because he certainly can't play small forward. No. And if you put him at center, he can't defend the rim, he can't defend the paint. And he's, he's not really your your ideal power forward body at this point because he's not quick. like Your average power forward is not quick. Tobias Harris used to be an oddity because he was a small forward-sized guy playing a power forward. This was great for him on offense because uh, he could beat guys off the bounce, uh, beat his, his slower opponents off the bounce. Now your average power forward is that fast. So and ironically, Tobias now is playing small forward a lot of the time, thanks to Horford being on the team. <laughs> so, yeah, the the teams to which to, to, to whom I uh, I would see topping uh, Golden State, maybe. Uh, other than that, Minnesota, because uh, I think if you're Minnesota, you think, okay, well, we need a a power forward who's you know I don't think they really have any of the power forward right now. I, I, I don't exactly remember whom they even started at power forward this season jeez uh, um I don't know I think they were starting Covington at power forward near the end of the season uh, I couldn't tell you. Beyond that yeah maybe Hernan Gomez I don't I really don't remember but they could really use a starting caliber small uh, power forward which I think Obi Toppin will be able to plug in his power forward uh, starting caliber power forward uh, I don't think he'll he's likely to be really a star at the position but I think like a Kong movie is a guy who has a high floor because he is a polished player. I mean, he's pretty well polished, uh, offensively versatile. He can shoot threes. Uh, he can exploit mismatches against, particularly against slower bigs, uh, whom he can beat off the dribble on the way to the basket. And he's got a decent enough passing game that when he does get to the paints, he can kick the ball out if somebody's in his way. And he's definitely got a touch inside the paints. Again, like a Kong movie is a fairly good post player, which is probably not going to translate to the NBA. But, you know, and he's, he's good as a role man, and he can, he can definitely score above the basket. Also good dunker. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's a guy, I think, that's going to have a high floor. Now, his ceiling is going to be determined by how much development he has left to do. He's going to be almost 23 by the time this, uh, this next season begins in December. And he only played two years at Dayton. So who knows? Maybe he has more room to develop, uh, or maybe he doesn't have so much room to develop. Uh, you know, his floor, I think, is as a solid rotation player. You know, maybe a starting caliber player uh, if he's like the fourth best player on a championship roster. His ceiling can be considerably higher if he continues to develop, and maybe he has that in him. Uh, I think it's it's probably somewhat unlikely, as you, rather see, you rarely see guys, uh, I think, power forwards like that. Really make that sort of enormous leap, uh, though sometimes you do. So it's not out of the question, but... Uh, you know, it's it's a big question, Mark. I don't think the Pistons will be looking at that position anyway, which I'll we'll get to later. But the Timberwolves, you know, you you've picked up D'Angelo Russell. You have him pairing with Carl Anthony Towns. Maybe you say, uh, you know, we think we've got the punch now and we want to take a guy who really sort of completes the lineup, even though they'll have a disaster of a front court on defensive end. It's Carl Anthony Towns whom I think he has more potential as a defender than than you know, he's he could be much better than he is, is bad. It's bad defensively. So I think those are the two teams also possible that uh, New York just decides they don't have enough power forwards because they only have <laughs> four of them right now. <clears throat> so, <laughs> you know, if they want to further impede the progress of Mitchell Robinson by, uh, by playing Randall or Portis at at, uh, at center, then sure. They've uh, definitely got space for, for uh, top in there. Though it's worth mentioning that I think like two of those power forwards, I think it's Bobby Portis and, uh, geez, I don't remember. Maybe really Taj Gibson. Oh, yeah. uh, Taj Gibson. Yeah, I think they're both on team options, so they're probably gone this summer. <clears throat> so, yeah, uh, that's uh, those are the only teams I really see uh, selecting top and uh, that high. I don't think Cleveland. Maybe Cleveland goes for him. Maybe though. I think Cleveland at this point is, is going to is going to be shooting for a higher upside player. You don't really look at at a team that's rebuilding and say, "Man, they could use uh, you know a game ready power forward who may not have a very good high, may may not have a very high ceiling." Chicago, maybe they trade uh, Laurie Markkinen, so maybe they're interested. Charlotte has PJ Washington. Washington, Washington the Wizards have uh, Rui Hachimura, and yeah, Atlanta has John Collins. So I don't if he's going high, he's going to a team that he really fits well. <clears throat> now, uh, when it comes to the Pistons. Yeah, we've mentioned that he'll probably struggle defensively. Uh, you know, be a switch risk, and uh, so on and so forth. Yeah, that's you the know, biggest th- th- thing th- for me. That's that's what I think you're yeah.
1: a lot higher than than me on Obi Toppin. But the, yeah, the lack of switchability, and I, I think if his three point shot regresses, and I, I think it will, he doesn't seem like the most natural three point shooter. And if if he is shooting at that percentage. Uh, the defense is going to tighten up a lot more around him, and I think he's he's going to fall off a little bit there. And then, and then if you can knock his knock his confidence a little bit, or you pick this, if you pick your spots right with him, uh, I think you can take away a lot of his game. And his athleticism probably won't matter as much. So I, I am not high on Obi Toppin at all. But I've I've been wrong on these uh, hyper athletic, you know, bigs. So I don't think it's hyper-
0: I don't think he's hyper athletic at all. I think I think it was put well that he's he's not quick he's he's just explosive and and I think your guys who are really hyper athletic are both so um, yeah as I was saying about being position locked there are some guys who can do it well like nobody gives a shit that Giannis is who ironically started as a shooting guard moved to small forward and is now basically full time power forward nobody cares that he can only play power forward because he's one of the best players in the league but uh, you know I don't think Toppin is gonna really top office anywhere near Giannis. Nonetheless, I digress. <laughs> One thing, uh, more than 25% of his field goals uh, were dunks. So it's definitely not going to be that efficient at the NBA level. I mean, it's it's just not going to have that kind of luxury. Yep. It's just another case in which he was able to victimize guys who were a great deal less athletic than he was. So yeah, outlook hard to say as he reached the ceiling at 22. If so, you get a reliable score, can play power forward and nothing else. Valuable, but not super valuable. If he continues to develop, maybe he becomes a very good scorer. I don't think he ever has all-star potential. And I think that there are plenty of players in this draft. Uh, he and a Kong would definitely, uh, who in a in a better draft would not be mocked anywhere near the top five. So, sailing, uh, if he is what he is right uh, it depends on what he is right now. If he's better, okay, great. You know, maybe he can be like a top 15 power forward in terms of scoring, in terms of overall play. far floor capable bench score. So, the distance, no. Uh, no, no, no. So, the <laughs> Pistons need, like I said, need to follow. They really need to focus on the more important positions. And while Topin is a the score, they really, really need guys who can create offense. Top end of the college level really needed help creating his offense. So, whether that be the the role man on the pick and roll or just getting spot up attempts at three point line, he really had no offense in between the three point line and, and the paint, which is fine. But you know, he wasn't creating his looks on pull up jumpers or anything like that. And uh, you know but the Pistons really need that guy point guard. They really need that guy in the wing. And I don't think, I don't think Toppin is that high ceiling guy you should really ever really consider taking. There's also the matter of existing personnel. I know that should not stop you from taking the best available talent. You know, of course there are a couple factors there. Number one, Toppin is not, the, I don't think he's the best available talent by any means. Also, yeah. I really feel like Seku projects his power forward. You know, he could probably play down to small forward, but, uh, He's not a super quick guy, not, not normally ideal to play small forward. I think he will line up primarily at the four is going to be his best fit. If he develops properly. Also Griffin for better or worse is going to be around for the moment. And he plays power forward too. Of course, that's much less, impre- that's much less interesting, but excuse me, not much, much less interesting, much less important. And again, there's a question of ceiling. So, yeah. to, I mean, top end and, and uh, Kong Wu as well, better fits for a team that is further along in a rebuild and like getting rid of Jackson and Drummond was stage zero of the rebuild. Now the Pistons are in stage one. There's a long way to go. You're not looking at the talent that can help you right now. And uh, and I believe those are the teams that are going to look at top. And maybe Cleveland is the only exception to that. And even then, Dan Gilbert wants the team to compete. That's why they re signed Kevin Love. That's why they fired uh, Tyron Blue. It's because he wants this team to win now. So maybe they do it.
1: Yeah, let's see how that works out for them. <laughs>
0: Uh yeah, who knows? Maybe they'll have more success in the Pistons, though uh, you know, I don't think Colin Saxon's taking them anywhere. And I don't think Darius Gar, you know, maybe Darius Garland's gonna make the lead, but beyond that, it's like, who do you have on the team? Yeah. Uh I think Kevin Love, who hates his life there, and uh <laughs> and, uh Osman, who's like uh, you know, the 20th best small forward in the league. And and who else? Who else did he even have? I think um, Zizic whatever. is moving
1: back to the Euro League. I, I think he's still on that team. I'm not even sure.
0: Yeah. Uh, whatever, <laughs> so anyway, uh I believe next time we'll be looking uh what up be just wings next time yep Shooting um, forward. Yeah.
1: forward yeah, I guess to Ten. to summarize this one uh it's it's really just to say that uh I think Christian Wood should be priorities one, two, and three uh there aren't many good big men in this draft class uh it was this discussion was really more to complete this series uh and get this one done. And I, I think really uh, the big man role has probably changed the most drastically. And that's, a, I, I found that personally a really interesting look because it's happened so rapidly, but uh, the draft is before free agency. So uh, if, if it looks like the Pistons aren't going to get uh, Christian Wood resign, maybe this is an option that they look at if, and if they have fallen in the draft, but uh, there are a lot of guys who I think can contribute a lot more, on the wing and as ball handlers. And we'll take a look at the wings next. And uh, that's pretty exciting. So anything else from you?
0: Uh, Well, uh, just to note, the NBA did move up the draft lottery by five days as well. So uh, now it's uh, August 20th rather than August 25th, but uh, that's really where we're going to see. Well, we're actually going to see nothing. Um, probably <laughs> because <laughs> uh, I was going to say that's, that's where we're going to see, uh, you know, Troy Weaver's first step as GM, but uh, it's actually not because see, we're not going to see that until probably October when the actual draft happens. Mm-hmm. So anyway, uh, I'd like to thank you all for listening as always, and we will catch you next time.